Hey, I'm Craig Finn, and you're listening to That's How I Remember It, a podcast that examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode will feature a discussion between myself and a creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal different ways that each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. The idea to do this was related to my new album, The Legacy of Rentals, which deals a lot with memory. How we remember people that are gone, places that have changed, major events that are part of our past. It deals with the imperfections of memory and the distortions that happen to our own stories when stretched by time and distance. Today, we are honored to have the opportunity to discuss this with Brian Koppelman. Brian's a very accomplished film and TV writer. He's worked with his writing partner, David Levain, to create screenplays for films like Rounder, Solitary Man, Ocean's 13, and more, as well as TV shows Billions and most recently Super Pumped. Before all this, he was a major label A&R guy and is still a committed and excitable music fan. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. Brian, thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure, man. Uh, you know, Craig, first of all, I consider you a friend. Second of all, you know, your music, uh, the way you use memory in your art, it really matters to me. And uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty obsessed Hold Steady fan and Craig Finn fan. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to talk to you. Well, I appreciate it. So, um Years ago, it's funny, this memory thing, it's obviously everything's a memory, so it can be very postmodern. You're like, oh, here's a memory. Uh, but years ago, uh, when I did my first solo album, I, I had the chance to sit down for an interview with David Carr. And David is, he, he's someone looms large in this, in my creating this podcast. Night of the Gun, his book, talks a lot about memory in a cool way. Um, but when I sat across from David Carr, his first question was kind of scary. It was, um, uh, what do you think you're good at? And I'm not going to ask you that. I'm going to ask you this. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? I have a really great memory for the things people say. And I always have. Like when, you know, people have visual memories or auditory memories, I think. Primarily, like, you know, obviously we all function in a bunch of different realms. And those of us who end up mining this stuff probably refine the way in which we gather uh, and sort memories. But from when I was young, if I watched a movie and I loved it, I wouldn't start draw. I wouldn't draw frames. Uh, I wouldn't try to use my camera. And I would remember the dialogue and I would recite the dialogue and I would hold on to the dialogue. And so that that's the way it functions for me, that the dialogue trips me into the fuller memory. Yeah, that, that may, and so obviously that helps you as a writer, right? Yeah, these things are connected, right? Like, yeah, the, the I mean, it goes back to the way you learn words and, and you memorize, you know, if you're somebody like you are, like you are and I am, where words really fascinate you, where it's not work to learn new words. Or like, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but if I'm reading a book and I come across a word I don't like, I mean, I don't know, I respond like I just found a prize or something. I'm so excited <laughs> to <laughs> circle it and learn it. And so I, I just, yes, I, it all works in, in, in that way. I, yeah, I remember when I uh, uh, started dating my partner, Angie, and I saw her do that, I was sort of, I sort of fell in love a little bit. Cause I, I also do that, you know? So yeah, I, I, there's this, and I, 
I ask this because I feel like most people, a lot of people, you know, they use that as a little, like, ah, oh, my memory's terrible. I'm oh, not good with faces, et cetera. But I feel like when I talk to writers, there's a little bit of a pride, like, yeah, I have a good memory. You know, I feel like writers are like the only ones who kind of cop to that. Uh, that might well be true. I mean, some writers have what I would say is a, a really good memory for emotional highs, emotional valiance, right? Emotional highs and lows for, um, uh, so they can remember what they were feeling in a given circumstance and they want to try to replicate, they're chasing that, right? They're chasing that. How do I express the ineffable feeling? And uh, of course, as I say, all of us have some version of, uh, various aspects of that. So I've met writers where it's like the actual memory for what was said or done isn't as strong as the memory for what was felt. But I, and, and, and of course, like I have a decent memory for what was felt, but mostly I have a good memory for what was said. And then from what was said, I can piece the rest of it back together. I can do that too, a little bit. I mean, again, when I, I, I've, I've, you know, pulled out, you know, I'm terrible at when, you know, you get in an argument with your partner and it's like, do you remember in September 2014 when you said, and then you say it, you know, and there's this kind of like blank look on their face. Like, how would you, how do you do that? Yeah, man, that's not cool. That's just not cool. But I, of course I've done it too, man. And also everyone in my life, no, I will say like, it's not even a point up for debate in most of the circles of my life. It, meaning when I say, I remember that, I, here's what you said. Here's what she said. Here's what they said. I've been like checked out enough that <laughs> that, um, that everyone knows that, that now they may argue about what it meant and they may be right about what it meant, like I'm saying, or what people were feeling or what the stakes were. But, you know, if I say, no, 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 they turned to you and they said, you go fuck yourself. Like that is what they said, you know, and everyone knows it. The, yeah, I, I can do it also. I, I Through touring, I, I'm the guy they turn to and say, have we played here before? What's the club look like? You know, and I say, oh, well, the shape's kind of an L shape and it faces back. They go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm that guy in the band. You know, speaking of emotional memories, do you think you're more likely to remember a good memory or a bad memory? Or is there any way that it flattens out over time? And I guess what I'm asking, like during the pandemic, when I thought about, oh, going on tour, I feel like you don't, rem I don't remember the part where you, you know, are sitting in a, a backstage with a rat, you know, rats and a, and a bad couch. You just remember the glory of playing. And so I feel like th there's some part that as humans, we might flatten out, but I'm wondering if you think so. Well, Walter Murch talks about this in, uh, in the blink of an eye, right? The, the amazing book about editing that when we blink, we're editing as we go. And that often when we look across a room, like I might blink, if, if you said to me, hey, look out the window and then look out the door, I might look out the window and then blink as I go to the door, as my head goes, so that I'm cutting out a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. And sure, I think memory works like this. In fact, uh, Amy and I just took a trip together and um, a few of the days, it was like sideways, sleeting rain, freezing cold, a trip we'd been really looking forward to, a European city where you walk around. And I knew there were times I was fucking miserable. And already, though, it's taking on the glow of uh, just a great time. And it was a great time. There were a couple days that sucked in the middle there because we made the decision to just like walk 10 miles in the freezing sideways sleet without good jackets on. 
And, uh, but I've already recast that as like this thing we got through with so much brio and connection and life. But I know during it, I was miserable pain in the ass. And uh, so, yes, we can blot, you know, block or blot out some of that stuff. Do you have any gaps? Do you have any like gaps where you like a period in your life where you remember less or, you know, are there, is there anything like that you have? For sure. Over time, like our, the working memory, the stuff that shows up all the time is a particular set of things. But if I run into somebody who references the time, I don't think about that often. I do think this might be a thing about writers. Like I can kind of go back and I'm immediately kind of mining it for meaning in a way, right? Connecting it and mining it for, for meaning. I mean, certainly if I flip it, I would say the spiky parts. Yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of planes, you know, flat planes uh, surrounding the spiky parts. You know, I can remember being 11 years old watching Dwayne Bobbick fight Ken Norton when I had a giant nosebleed that I had to be hospital for, hospitalized for because 10 days prior to that, I'd broken my nose. And like, I remember everything, you know, what happens is like the bad, the crazy bad thing happens. And then you kind of, um, your mind, you remember the preceding 15 minutes before that too, for the rest of your life, because it's all connected. Now that 15 minutes would have been gone if the nosebleed hadn't happened. Right. But because it did, I remember, and I can close my eyes and I remember being in the hospital and looking up and, and now this is, uh, 44 years ago, you know, I was 11, I'm 55. And I, I remember, uh, my aunt Roz walking into the room and looking at me, uh, because my dad was in the city and he couldn't get back in time. And so first my aunt Roz showed up and I can remember looking up and seeing her. And that's a weird thing to remember out of nowhere. And yes, probably there are other parts of that six month period that are completely lost. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that for myself, like junior high, I still remember, I kind of remember it in black and white. I think I was having some problems. I started to think it was trauma. And I think like I, I was maybe depressed in a medical sense, clinical sense. And I didn't know it at the time. But when I look back on that, it's, it, it's, it's, um, black and white. And then I got sent to a new school I made new friends and it's sort of like the wizard of Oz. Like it comes to color. And I, I love that. I love that. So if you want to, can you put yourself back in that first junior high before, you know, that middle school? Yeah. And I, you know, there's uh, like, there's, you know, I, I think we remember uh, with different senses, right? So there's, there's certain smells, there's a, you know, a mustiness, there's a certain lighting. Uh, Patterson actually was talking about that, like the, the fluorescent lighting can kind of bring that back. And that real institutional, big public school, um, just some of that, you know, those just just the hallways and the lockers and all that. Craig, I love that you brought up smell because that's gigantic for all of us. And and uh, there's no doubt that there are certain when there's a certain atomized thing, it, it can bring me to a certain hotel lobby I walked into once. Or I can remember the perfume my mom wore, you know, who's passed away 15 years ago. Or there are there, there's there's no or like, you know. I can walk by somebody and smell a certain perfume and absolutely 100% know the young woman I dated who wore that same perfume. And it brings me, and then like the same thing where you're not, suddenly you remember five things that you hadn't had in the front of your mind about times that you were with that person, things that happened, things you saw. Yeah. I mean, smell and taste too. And taste, um, I was gonna like, I mean, now that we're talking about it, like obviously, like 
you know, in billions, you have food, there's a lot of food, right? There's there, you know, because there's restaurants and chefs and all that. And I was thinking about taste in restaurants, especially, a, I was thinking about like a band, it band gets old, band can put out like a bad album, you know, um, or, you know, a TV show, it can go on in whatever, but movie, etc. But a restaurant can stay classic, you know, so you can go back and you're like, wow, that I'm eating that for 20 years now. And I've grown so much as a person, but this thing is still the same. And that's kind of an amazing thing. It's an amazing me measuring stick in a way. On the flip of that, when something closes, like the band breaks up, you still have their records. When something closes, um, and I'm curious if you have any in a place like that that comes to mind that you like are like, oh my god, you know, because it's, oh, it's in the ether. I, now. I really do. Oh yeah, I was just talking about this the other night with some friends. Some friends and I went, and we ate at the most classic New York place uh, in Chinatown on Mott Street, Peking Duck House, which has been there forever since I before I was born. I mean, when I was a little boy, Ed Koch used to go there every Sunday night, and famously, you know, and uh, and when when Sammy was little. Uh, on his birthday, Sam, this is the day after his birthday, uh, so his birthday is December 1, so December 2nd, every year for a number of years, my father, me, and Sam would go and have dinner at Peking Duck House. It was a once a year tradition. So when I went back there the other night with my friends, it was still great, and we were so happy, but we started talking about exactly what you're talking about. And I, the, there's a, there was a place in New York City called the Kiev, and it's a perfect time to think about the Kiev. It was on 2nd and 7th, 2nd Avenue and 7th Street. It was open all night. And I was in my early 20s. And in my early 20s, I would wander into the Kiev at three in the morning uh, with whomever I was with, musicians, uh, people I was dating or friends who were other A&R guys uh, and other A&R women. I can remember a few of them right now that I went there with. and. You know, we would, I still remember exactly what I would order. I remember what the menu looked like. I would get, uh, I would get one balance and four pierogies. They had a thing where you could either get two balances, eight pierogies or four and one. And I would get four and one. And, uh, and you know, you feel so alive in a restaurant that's like a diner, but because it was New York city, it was an exotic diner. It was a Ukrainian diner, a Russian diner at the time. Right. And so there, there and it wasn't pronounced Kiev then, it was the Kiev. And, and, you know, there weren't, I mean, so this just ties into a whole bunch of stuff, right? There weren't cell phones. So you would have had to have made that plan uh, a long time ago. There were cell phones, but like there weren't text, you couldn't text it, there was no texting, right? So, so you would just make a plan with somebody like, all right, I'll meet you at CBGB and we'll go watch like, uh, Ronnie Sweetheart and the Throbs. And then uh, after that, maybe we'll go to the see Gordon Gaines play at the bitter end with Van Romaine on drums. And then, uh, oh, you got to go see another gig? Fine. Kiev at two? And then like, that's the thing, right? You were going to show up at the Kiev at two. And as I'm talking about this, I feel, I feel a cold winter night, right? I feel the cold winter night. I didn't go there much in the summer. So I felt the cold because you're not getting pierogies and blintzes at three in the morning in the summer. But I can feel the cold winter night and what, and, and being, you know, A&R guy, I mean, I wasn't wearing a big down jacket, right? I was probably wearing some fucking stupid thin leather jacket and cause I had to be cool. And, uh, we'd walk into the Kiev and I could feel the way I'd start to warm up and 
my friends would show. And, and you know, that, that memory of hoping they were going to show up and, or knowing they were going to show up and then they walk in the door and your night's going. And, and yeah, so that place, I fucking miss the place. But of course, if it were here, that's not the night I'd be having at the Kiev. If it were here, I'd go at five in the afternoon when I happen to be downtown for some mundane reason. And I would just be sort of like telling myself that glory story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can only bring, yeah, the food can be the same, but it, you know, you, you, as you say, it's a measuring stick. It's like the food can be the same, but your life is going to change. I mean, that's like, uh, that's like everything, but I, you know, the, the, when I first moved to New York in 2000, I worked in union square and there was this pizza place called Mariella's. It was on third Avenue and 16th street. And, I loved it. And we signed uh, the first Hold Steady record deal over lunch there when I was like in, you know, break from the office. And uh, every time I was over there, I'd, I'd get a slice there just because it, it was that thing, you know, it was, it was a, it was a good memory and, and the food was really good. And uh, it was a classic place, you know, pizza place, slice place with too many employees. You know how they're like, you know, and there's like 14 guys behind the counter and, and there's always a staff mail being served and it always looks amazing. Uh, it burned. And, you know, it's like, that's just gone. Like they, they didn't open, there was no new, like it's, it wasn't kind of place that's going to relocate. You know, I've, I've searched the internet. It's, I, I don't know anything about it, but I think about Bobby Axelrod and his relationship with the pizzeria. And I was like, wow, if I was a billionaire, I would, I would buy that and have that. Hey, I'm Craig Finn here on That's How I Remember It. We often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. But nothing does strong does this stronger, and I'm sure you're going to get to this. But I, I have to say, like um, Day Positive, 2009 eight, did it come eight. out? Eight, 2008, yeah. right? So it comes out in 2008, and you know my kids were. 13 and nine. And that album was our most listened to album of that year. And, you know, I got that record early. And so I had been listening to it early. You know, I'll never forget. Okay. Talk about never forget. I'll never forget. Tad gave me a cassette with, uh, with Lord, I'm discouraged and Adderall on it. And I remember, uh, going home and listening to it and calling him and saying like, I can't fucking believe how great this is. And he was like, I'm not sure Adderall's going to make the album. <laughs> and I was like, that's insanity. That makes no sense. That's one of the best Hold Steady songs. What do you mean that might not make the album? And he's like, I'm telling you, we've written all these better songs. And it, like songs that cohere. And they like, I can remember this whole, because I remember walking around going, oh, they're fucking up. They're fucking up. And then I get the album and, you know, it's perfect. And uh, and I was so glad when you finally did release Adderall's Bisa. But, but the point is, my daughter, who was nine, for years, we would all sing along loudly. And for years, she was sure she was singing Sabrina in Texas. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Sequestered in Memphis. So we, but, but this is the point. 
our family now, right? She's graduating college this year. And sometimes all four of us will be in the car. And if I throw that on, we are instantly back to the kids being nine and 13 and Amy and me being in our late thirties or early forties. This is what, this is like, what is exciting to me that, you know, cause I think about like, okay, our, our experiences and memories create, you know, as writers, we create this stuff, we create stories, they become songs, they become television shows. And then we release them. They come out in the world and it's like, well, you know, of course my own life, I'm like, oh, I remember when we were promoting stay positive, but you have this other memory of it too. And so they become these other kind of signposts that people build memories around, um, which is really exciting to me. And I, I, you know, I, I'm sure you have other albums that like, are like seasonal, right? I mean, I, I, there's certain albums I only listen to in the fall or there's certain things that sound better in the summer. And, um, do you have those? Yeah, or records, I would say, yes. I definitely listen to Southeastern more in the winter, for instance. I definitely listen to it because, you know, Cover Me Up and Elephant, those are, those are cold weather songs for some reason. Uh, or Fall Into Winter songs. They're not spring. That's not a spring album. I mean, it's not a spring album. So... No, I, I always think like for me, Husker Du is a, is a winter band uh, and they have that song Ice Cold Ice. So I don't know if that uh, influences that, but uh, you know, the, the replacements records, I think of when they came out, uh, both Let It Be and Tim came out in the fall. Those will always be fall records for me. Um, and I, when I was talking to Patterson, I said, R.E.M.'s Reckoning was a fall record to me. And he's like, no, it came out in the spring. And I was like, yeah, but it was like when I changed schools, these guys turned me on to that record. And that was fall. So that'll always be a fall record to me. Well, yeah, R.E.M. is great. Though the one, so the R.E.M. record that I only listened to in the winter, uh, because I had two cassettes in my car sophomore year, which was a terrible year. I had this beat up Jeep CJ7 and it was all dented and the heat didn't work. And uh, Boston winter. And the two cassettes in my car were Nebraska and fables of the reconstruction and nebraska is just all year round nebraska is just whenever you're depressed there's it, you got to put on nebraska but but fables feeling gravity's pull might be like for me the quintessential freezing cold because also they talk about making the record in swampy terrible britain at the time you know they describe it as this miserable experience at joe boyd and it was cold and rainy and so there's something about the record that's like you 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 feel those emotions. And of course, look, Stay Positive is a summer album, but uh, it is also maybe because of Constructive Summer, but also because they are sing-along songs. And, uh, you know, that idea uh, it permeates. But, you know, obviously I used, Dave and I used Lord, I'm Discouraged when a guy's getting a bad beating and Solitary Man in the dead of winter on one of the coldest nights of my life. So I think I have a lot of different associations with that album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, overall, do you have eras? Like, early MTV stuff, I love. Uh, like, I'll go, if I have too many glasses of wine, I'll go on YouTube and be looking up, like, Madness and Haircut 100 videos because that that's just, like, a time that really excites me uh are there uh, or in movies you know whatever are there are there eras that you are drawn to well yeah movies for sure but but i'll say one thing lately that's been happening to me as i've gotten older and i wonder if if it hits you this way which is there are times now where the memories are just it's too much i can't go back to it uh because the passage of time and in in particular 
as related to, to our kids and, you know, Amy and my kids. And, and, uh, so there are like, there are periods of time that it's tough for me to listen to August and everything after, because Amy and I were falling in love and, uh, are just in love, new in our thing together. And that album was the album of that year and took us through it. And now, you know, sometimes it's just like, Whoa, that's really a beginning thing. And we're just on a whole different side. I mean, Adam would be a fascinating guy for you to talk to about this stuff because it seems to me that his music is drenched in particularly like memories of rejection, right? Memories of not being quite good enough. And it seems like he's still sort of fighting through that, but telling himself a version of that. Yeah, I mean, story. We're, I mean, this is all like we're and we're always telling ourselves these. We're building these stories on, uh, on, yeah, on, on, on these memories. And some of them we sometimes we don't remember them, right? What do you do? You have like a first musical memory, like the the first, like when you fell in love. You with know, music? I grew up in such a musical household, mm-hmm. and you know, my dad was a record producer and publisher, and so like it was always, even though he wasn't a musician, there were just always people coming over and playing music i would say like when it became my own so like i loved elton i loved crocodile rock but that was and i i was pretty obsessed with that at six and seven but i would say i got a turntable for my bar mitzvah my own turn we had turntables in the house but i got my own turntable from my room when i was 13 and the first album that i got was the river and every morning, you remember you could set it somehow so that it would drop at yeah. a certain, I don't remember how that worked, but you, you could set the thing somehow so that it dropped in the morning or whatever somehow, or I could yeah. just do it. I don't know why or how, but anyway, my thing just would drop on ties that bind for like a whole, whatever it was, season of school that year. And that was a pretty big deal to me, you know, the river, like the river. And I would read, I would read, and it was also like, reading i would read the so my dad would get these magazines billboard cashbox record world and i would read them and read them and read them and then from that i started reading you know cream and sir i started reading every one of those magazines and so you would i remember this feeling of like and i was talking to mellencamp about this but like i remember so clearly this feature on mellencamp when american fool was coming out and giving context to like oh this this guy who was an almost was, and then he releases this album where it fucking coalesces and explodes. And so I don't know. It, 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 I could tell you, like, there are little stories of music the whole way for me, luckily, but probably The River and then uh, Women and Children First. Those are probably the first two things that mattered to me in a different way where they were like, you know, mine mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, that's... Uh, you just give me a, a, my own memory of like my parents having a dinner party and they'd put the f- records up on that thing, you know, and then one would fall <laughs> after another yeah. and there'd be like six in a row. So you'd like your music would be handled for a few hours. Uh, that's that's seems pretty quaint right now. Um, how about writing like like for movies and TV? Did you, did you have a, a, a kind of a memory of when you thought you might want to do that? Yeah. I mean, I have a very clear memory. I. Well, I've been going through, so I've been watching Westerns. Amy and I watched uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, one of my favorite movies of all time. We we watched that the other night. I had, you know, with those movies, you got to be, I have to be careful to keep them fresh. So I probably haven't watched Liberty Valance in 
eight years. But I mean, it's a movie I know very well, but I haven't watched it in like eight years. So we put it on and of course, immediately started talking. Mean, this was podcast is such a good idea that you're doing because we just immediately I stopped the movie and I said, you know, there were three channels when I was growing up. Plus like, so there were three channels plus like the little two local channels that you would have plus PBS. But as kids, maybe you were already cultured, but there was no, I was no, I was not watching any PBS except for kids. You know, <laughs> I wasn't watching no, like, you know, uh, opera on PBS, but Saturday afternoons, a lot of the time, if the right sports weren't on. I was just like sitting with my dad in his room, like lying on his bed, watching Westerns. Cause there would be like some Westerns on mm-hmm. television and we would just watch them. And uh, so I don't, I had no thought then that I would do this or that I could do this. In college, I went and saw within a very short time of each other, Raising Arizona and She's Gotta Have It. And when I saw those two movies, the way that the characters expressed themselves hit me in a place. I was the perfect age, right? I was 19. It just hit me in a way that like nothing had ever hit me before. Uh, I mean, it was the separating. It was like those two movies, you know, no one ever spoke like Mars Blackman before. And also no one ever spoke like H.I. McDonough. And suddenly you're watching those films and hearing those voices and that way that people spoke and something was like, you know, that's the realization. I, I always knew someone wrote movies. I'm, I'm not going to be that. Like I always hear people say like, I didn't realize people made movies like I did, but, but I was like, Oh, there's a, this is like an authorship. Like there's, there's this unified voice. There's a th- not, you know, there's a thing happening. But but for me, unlike I think for you when you heard whatever band, like it took a really long motherfucking time, man. Because like it was so scary to me to think I could do. It. I didn't really think I could do it. I, I I had such bad ADHD that I couldn't ever finish anything. I, I knew I had a facility for words, but I really never thought I could finish it. I, I had so much of a hard time finishing a ten page thing. So I would say those two things, and let's say those were. 86-ish, and then uh, 86, 87, and then 87, that's the girl I went with, it was 87, and then, I remember the house I was living in, so it was 87, and then, and then uh, Amy and I, 94, go to see Pulp Fiction when it comes out on the night it comes out, and, uh, you know, the moment Uma drew that rectangle on the screen, that was uh, uh, an enormous kind of like wake up call again of like this art form matters to me more than any other right now. Like what the fuck? Like all I did was read, you know, I loved books. I read more books than like anybody else. I just loved them. Uh, but, but then it was like, what the fuck is this movie thing? Holy shit. I, I just, I, you know, okay. Talk about memory. Like I remember, I remember when Amy and I left that theater in 1994 and I remember running into this dude who manages managed record producers in the lobby, a British dude. And I remember talking to this British guy, like, can you believe what we just saw? And he was like, yeah, it was pretty good. I was like, no, 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 that wasn't pretty good. That was not pretty good. That was incredible. That's life chance. That's the, you're going to, and I, I, I remember arguing with this guy in the lobby of the theater, Craig. And then still, it was a few more years before I, I, I had like the, you know, finally had like the internal break where I, I had no choice, but to finally try to, do this work, but, but for sure, those things made me then watch all sorts of other things, you know, because then I was chasing what that feeling was.
Well, Tarantino also was, you know, like if you read about him, he was constantly putting stuff out there for you, which I I think, you know, helped me see a ton of films because uh, it was like, yes. oh, watch Spartacus. And I was like, oh, I got to watch Spartacus, I guess. Right. Um, yes. But, you know, my best friend growing up is, is a, a television, accomplished television writer, Edward Kitsis. And uh, I was like, we'd hang out and I'd be like, I'm going to be in a band. And he's like, I'm going to be a TV or I'm going to be a you know, film writer. And I, and I, I remember thinking like, how the hell are you going to do that? I mean, a band seems far-fetched, but like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we're in Minneapolis. I'm like, I don't know how you're going to do it. It seems even further because there's more layers and there's more money and, and you really have to navigate getting things made. Yeah, that's true. But you know, like you're talking about your friend, obviously, you know, I do all this with my lifelong best friend, David Levine. And, and so we were having a conversation the whole time. Like another movie was Angel Heart, uh, which we had a lot of fun with on Billions this season. Like I remember Dave saw Angel Heart and he called me and he, that would have been um, junior year too. Junior year was a big year for this, but he called me. He was in Michigan. I was at Tufts. And he, I remember he called me and he's like, there's this movie, Angel Heart. There's a lot going on. You got to go see it. I'm like, why? He goes, cause like, I got to make, I got to see if I like, I have a theory. <laughs> I was like, you have a theory about a movie? He's like, I have a theory. So I remember going to see it, you know, and we went, we each went to see it a number of times as I did, by the way, do the right. Um, she's got to have it. Like I saw she's going to have it three nights in a row. And I took various people because I was like, you got to fucking see this. But like Angel Heart, I remember going to it three nights in a row or three nights over five nights and Dave and I calling each other and having these like long talks trying to understand why, what it meant when the fans turned on. And, uh, you know, I think finally all these years later, we, we understand it, but it was, uh, it was a movie as text and, and we were constantly having those conversations so that when I walked into a poker room and heard these people talk and realized this is the thing we should write, we'd, been preparing to do it and we didn't think at all about the odds man i mean we just got up early in the morning like you know and wrote before work and i mean dave was bartending so he wrote after work but yeah we just didn't consider all that stuff you're talking about we just figured well let's just write the best screenplay we can when you say people talking in the poker rooms was that you know you've talked about how you remember dialogue was that was that is that something you keyed in on right away well, yeah, this guy named, I mean, we've written about him, but like um, we wrote his eu a eulogy for him online, but uh, this guy named Joel Bagels, who became in the movie Joey Kanish, one of the first nights that I was in the poker place, there was a uh, Hasidic guy or a, a guy wearing a yarmulke playing, and he was kind of bitching at Joel Bagels because Joel bluffed him out of a hand or something. And he was like, how could you do that to me? I'm a man of the, I'm a man of God. Like, how could you do that? And, and Joel Bagel said, come on, Irving, you're the only Jew I know who took Germany plus the points. <laughs> and he just said that off the top of his head. And I fucking like wrote it, immediately wrote it down and ran to a payphone and called Dave. And I was like, dude, write this down, write this down, write this down. This guy just said, you know. So, uh, yeah, I was paying attention to the dialogue. I couldn't believe it. I mean, he also said in the poker game of life, women of the rake. I mean, he said it right at the, right in the Mayfair club. And, uh, and, you know, I went to that guy and I said, like, we're making this movie. Can I use this stuff? And can I call the character? Joe? And he was like, hundred percent do it. And he loved it. And he always loved it. We changed the character, but it was so inspired by, uh, by this one dude. And, you know, we took that, that, uh, in the poker game of life, women of the rake, and we gave it to worm because it's a really scummy thing to say. Joe Bagels were just kidding around about it. 
But we gave it to Worm in the movie, not to the Kanish character, because we wanted Kanish to represent something else. So you do play with your memory, right? You don't, you, as an artist, you can't have total fealty to what really happened. You have to be willing to shuck and jive based on where you want the, the piece of art to, to live, right? Yeah, and you might shine. The, I think I think of it as shining the spotlight. So you might sort of misdirect sometimes. You know, it's like, all right, you know, you might take sixty percent from someone, and then you're like, I gotta, I gotta put in twenty from someone else because otherwise, I'm just, you know. Well, I always figure with you though, some of it is is an imagined memory. Like I imagine Chill Out Tent, for instance, is not you in the Chill Out Tent, but no. it's 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 uh, shards of stories you heard about various Chill Out Tents. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember hearing that uh, um, that if you get to if you were at this one uh, at a at a Grateful Dead show, someone quote on you know a friend of a friend got you know took got a bad acid trip and went to the chill out tent and they tied a balloon to his to his wrist and said just concentrate on this and I was like and ever since then when I'd watched. Uh, see like a uh, terrible, you know, this this medical tent at a festival. I always thought, I don't want to go in there. Like, right. they're gonna tie, you're going to be like bleeding, you're losing a limb, and they're going to be like tying a balloon to your other wrist. Um, and how do you feel when people make, when? how do you feel when people take, um, like you said that thing about how, so I have this memory of, you know, Anna singing Sabrina. And of course the whole family sings Sabrina now sometimes when we're together, right? Because we're, well, if, why sing Sabrina if you could sing Sabrina? Uh, but like how a resurrection really feels, let's say. So like, I don't think I really know what how a resurrection really feels is about. I just love that song. I don't know that I've like, I sing along to it in my own way. It gives me a certain feeling it's a song that makes me feel good for some reason, which I know that like, it's not a feel good song, even though you say, you know, these are feel good songs. It's not a feel good song, but like, how do you think about the difference between the memory you have creating the music? Not that thing where you said you were on tour or whatever, like, you know, there's this artistic impulse. You work your ass off to write something. You're trying to express something very particular. You know, you're somebody who will use the words wicked strict Christian and two songs, 10 years apart and hope you're, you know, or a strict Christian, you know, hope your audience will understand and recognize that. So that connected unified thing matters to you yet. You have to also know that sometimes some of your most diehard listeners have associations, memory that have nothing to do at all with what you intended. And how does that, how does that feel? Do you care? I don't care. I think it's like if they're having associations, that's a good thing. You're just putting it out in the world. I mean, it's kind of like the thing of you're putting your own. Th I mean, look, Lord, I'm discouraged is a really personal song to me. I'm also happy that it's in your film uh, and, and, you know, being taken, uh, you know, in it used in a different way. It's it's everyone gets discouraged. But that, you know, that song is about something that really happened to me. Um, so, you know, it, it gets this sort of it gets meanings get added to it. And I think like throughout, you know, I was going to ask you about, you know, there's the way you use music that that comes up a lot. And there's, you know, there's songs that I feel like have been like Layla to me has been hijacked by the sink, right? Um, I can't hear the coda from Layla, Layla and not, not think of its use in a film. Um, but that's just, you know, that's putting it out in the or, world. Yeah. Well, it's weird, right? There are certain things like, um, like a really favorite hold steady song of mine that people, are, you know, it's not one that's on most people's like top five list or to, is a sweet part of the city. 
And I, I've intentionally not ever read the words because I've made, you know, cause again, I got that early. It's a weird thing. I'll say getting albums from your friends early is great. But, and one of the great things about it is I it's, there's nothing alongside it. I am only getting the music. I don't have the artwork. I might know what the record's called. I might not know what the record's called. I, there's no way I'm looking at the lyrics. I'm just living with the songs. And I know what sweet part of the city felt like to me. And uh, yeah, like I'm intentional. I, I, I don't really know what the fuck you wrote that song for. And that's you and Tad wrote that song for. And it's uh, fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, that that one was more stream of consciousness. You know, that one was like I, I wanted to capture the idea of like, like you know, when you when you are on tour and you start to look around for like, you know, where 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 are the groovy people? Like, you know, like they, we used to do this thing, and uh, uh, Tad used to do it, and you know, he, he's been sober a long time, but he, you know, he used to say, "Get in the cab and say, take us to where people who look like us drink," and um. It works. You know, the cab driver's like, okay. And you, you end up in the, the, you know, whatever bar you want to go to. Right. Like, I'm sure that, oh, that's fascinating, right? I'm sure that that record is suffused for you with what Tad was going through during that time. And some of your audience might know about it and some of your audience might not, but it's all in the first four songs on the record. So, oh yeah. And people, uh, yeah. And people, you know, some, it, for me, it's a hard record because I can't, I can't disassociate it with the difficulty of making it. There's other people like, it's my favorite record hands down, you know? And you're like, wow. Uh, you know, I mean, that happens all the time. I, I remember, you know, like even in shows, I remember having, uh, food poisoning and barely being able to do a show in Cincinnati. And, you know, I was throwing up, going on, throwing up, going off, did the show a year or two later, I meet this guy at another show. And he's like, I saw you guys in Cincinnati, like two years ago, it was amazing. And I was like, tonight was better. Right. He's like, Oh no. And I, you know, it's like, you know, maybe he had more money in his pocket tonight or like, maybe it was just, you know, but there's no, there way. was a feeling no, he needed to see that. I can tell you that's about him needing to see you. He needed to see you in the first show for his life, where he was in his life. He needed what you guys bring, right? He needed the revival. Like, I'll tell you another fa fascinating memory thing for you to think about as you're doing this show, which is I've, I've asked you a couple times about meeting Bruce. And, uh, and I, you know, I've been lucky enough, too, to spend one, you know, a bit of time with him. And, and, and it's, what's funny to me is, like, um, someone asked me last night about meeting him, and I told the whole story. And Amy said, like, God, I mean, I've just heard the story a thousand times. And of course, you know, Bruce has never once told the story about meeting me. And so like, right, like you, you've told me, you know, you were about to go on at whatever Radio City or wherever it was. And you guys had your your that moment, that first moment. And of course, like for you, that's a huge moment. And for him, what do you do? You, I mean, what do you he, think? It, he has those every day, you know, Um uh, and yeah, every day he's making someone's, you know, making someone's day, making someone's year. And he, there's no way he could keep them all straight. You know, he, you know, he's making Titans happy. <laughs> like, yeah, but memory, but, but specifically he's carving out just to get to write what you're talking. Specifically, he's implanting in people's memories in that way. Like you said, on a daily basis and yet he his memory he has to keep his clean of it he can't take all that on he he can only really say yes i see you i see you i get i understand what this is to you 
It can't be this to me. And it has to Teflon through it, right? Even for an artist, he clearly admires your work. Uh, and he told me, I know that he watches the show. Like, but it's meaning, but but still it's utterly meaningless to him compared to the thing that it is to us, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, it's very one way in that sense. Or, you know, uh which which is a strange you think about that's a strange way to live. I mean, that's a strange thing to take on, right? For a Dylan or a Springsteen or you know, to have people who want to watch you walk. Uh, 30 feet to your car after the show yeah whereas like you and patterson like let's say you and patterson because you brought brought patterson up you can do that for people too but but and yes i'm sure when you're on the road it's a daily thing where because of the way people attach to what you do it really matters to them uh but you can probably still kind of hold on to certain memories in a way that bruce can't Sure. Yeah. I mean, I also can have, you know, I can spend all day of a show walking around a strange town uh, and really being like, that was just a beautiful day. Like I went to the park, I read a book, I went to a cafe and he, you know, I don't think he can do that. Um, you know, so, so there is, there, there are um, a lot more experiences um, than being in the back, being whisked to the backstage, etc. So are there some records for you that fit that not yours? That actually feel like, like they become a memory to you, like they're so connected to a moment. Oh, or... yeah. I mean, Replacements Let It Be is the first yeah. record that I waited for it to come out. And I went there with my dad. It's a great, it's a great story. I went to the record store, Orfolk, which is kind of a legendary in the replacements lore. That's where they handed their demo tape to Peter Jesperson. My dad had come off for the golf course and I was going to like figure out how to get there. But he was like, I was like, can I get a ride to the record store? And he was like, yeah, but he was wearing these um, golf pants uh, that had little whales all over them. Oh, They're really preppy. And, uh, and I was like, are you going to change? And he was like, no, why? And I was like, okay, well, I guess I can't, you know? So he gets in the car and he comes into the store with me and uh, I grabbed the record and I, I remember, you know, it meant so much to me. It was, it, it came out on Tuesday, but I couldn't get to, because I lived in the suburbs, I couldn't get to the store until uh, Saturday. So I kind of spent the week, you know, thinking about what it was going to sound like. We got up there and my dad, I had money, but my dad paid for it because he could tell it was really important to me. And the guy behind the counter turned down the music, which I still remember was I Feel Good by James Brown, which it cranked and he turned it down and he said, cool dad and then he looked at me and he said cool kid and uh and we went away and i i it was october i think is you know that but again that that the smell of the autumn leaves always brings back and and that's still my favorite record like and uh it was a very sad time in my life but that record kind of was a lifeline and i i always think i will always always connect it to actually the purchase. I always thought that that might be an interesting thing to go, to go through someone's record collections and see how many records they knew where they bought. I know, but this is gone, man. <laughs> I mean, this is what Dave Hawes and I were talking about on my podcast, which is like, you know, when you put out a record, I, I was asking him if he still listens the way we used to listen. Because we used to take the day. Like, uh, I went through this huge heavy metal phase and uh, uh, Run, Run to the Hills was on LIR, and I heard that song right before LIR turned to alternative. You know, it was Freeform Station. They would sometimes play metal, and they played Run to the Hills. I'd read about Maiden a lot in Kerrang. I knew the first albums, the first two albums. 
And I cut the only time I ever cut school, I cut school to find my way to record world to get that record. And I mean, I just remember coming home and it, you know, because you didn't have a phone and because of what, you know, my whole night was about one thing. My whole afternoon was about one thing, listening to number of the beast, waiting for my friends who didn't cut school to come over so we could listen to number of the beast together over and over and over again. Uh, and like, so I remember because of that, I have these deep memes, connected mem memories just that are tied in to that, looking at that album cover and trying to understand, you know, the 666 thing and all of it, like just, uh, it, it's all so heavily intertwined. But, but we were talking about that. Really, you only do that now because of the way for artists that mean a lot to you ahead of time, or if a very good friend you trust is like, take this record that I just heard and go for a drive and don't do anything else. But when we were saying you're, you know, when you put out a record, I still, my first listen to it has to be like a concentrated listen. You know, I'm going to go and find a way to really listen to it. And that might mean I don't get to listen to it for a month after you send it. Cause I don't want to just listen the way that I'm listening to everything. Else. I don't want to, be living my life with the record on in the background. I want to fucking listen to it. So yeah, I remember how I bought every single album that I had through college or whatever. And then it, then it, then it shifted. I, I remember Check Your Head coming out and like in, when I was in college and it was like, we all had to get together. We couldn't listen to it. And, you know, there was like bong hits and then someone said, press play, you know? And it was like this uh, communal, uh. like, like, and it, it really blew our minds. I mean, it was it, amazing. I have, I have two things I want to ask real quick and then I'm going to uh, wrap up. But, uh, so the first one is unrelated, but I just want to get it in because I have been meaning to ask you this for a long, long time, a long time now. Last season, the season, the scene where Chuck cooks eggs. Yes, sir. What, how did you decide to do it? was, it's spectacular. And thank you. And there's a silence and a method to it that you don't normally see in TV. And there was something really moving about that. And I'm wondering how you came up with that. This isn't about memory, but, but I just need to know. Well, in a way it is because it's connected to a movie that means really a ton to David and me. When we were trying to, write our first movie um or had just been written it a movie came out in theaters and that movie we went to see it and it was miramax movie and at the time this before all the harvey weinstein stuff you know we so badly want this movie had that blue m in front of it and it was like our target of life was like how do we end up on that label right you know you want to be in a certain record company and it was like and that movie was big night and that moment comes from the movie big night I wondered if it was a reference. I, I didn't look it up on the internet before we talked, but I was watching, I was thinking like, I think I'm supposed to know this. Um, it's, it, no, what's great about that moment is it works so well if you don't know, and it works beautifully if you know. And it was really important to us. And there were some people who didn't want us to do it. And there was people who suggested we edit it. And there was, uh, it was a very satisfying moment when like the chairman of Showtime, who's a friend and really just very wise and great to us, called us, this guy named David Nevins, and he called and he said, I just want you to know, I think that moment is like the most brilliant moment. That moment moves me. And I'm so happy that you did that on the show and on our network. And, and it was great. And then when it came out, like there was all this reaction. I mean, the most noisy for a quiet scene, like the most noisy <laughs> people wrote about it. And, um, 
You know, it, it was about, I, I, as you sometimes, I don't want to really say what it was about. I will say mm-hmm. that it was part of it was this homage that connects heavily for David and me. We love that movie. It's a perfect movie, Big Night. If you haven't seen it, Craig, it's a masterpiece. I got to watch it, yeah. It's a small movie masterpiece. Stanley Tucci wrote and directed it uh, with Tony Shalhoub and Campbell Scott, and it's incredible. Um, Like, uh, Campbell Scott uh, directed it with Tucci, and Tony Shalhoub and Tucci wrote it together, I think. And it's just a phenomenal movie. But then there's this ineffable thing it's supposed to... It's supposed to communicate, and I think it does, and I don't, I don't really want to talk about what that is. But you you got it. If you got it, you got it. I have theories, but, well, you know, I'm going to move. So I have the one last question, which I think is really important to me and uh, ties into sort of the my record and the, and, the, uh, and the title anyways. But one of the things I think Billions deals a lot with is legacy. Uh, billionaires, by definition, set set for life. So he starts to think about the impact on the world, you know, uh, what you know beyond them. And as a writer, do you relate to that? I, you know, are you thinking about you know you're making things that will outlast you and me and all this? Do you, at this point in your career, do you think of that? Well, like you with you know, like you when somebody shows up at a concert in a lifter puller T-shirt, you already. Like in 200 years, no one's going to remember a thing that I wrote, right? So, I mean, I have to know that. But I already see, and it's already rewarding to me, when Rounders is handed down to someone's little brother or their kid and their kid's generation is watching it and knows it by heart. And, I mean, it's satisfying. I'm still more, listen, I'm still more of a fan. Like, you know, the best part of the trip, I told you that had a couple of those weird days when there was sideways rain, was... uh. We went to Paris and I always, even though it's so corny and stupid, I always go to a couple of the Hemingway cafes. And uh, I don't know why it's so meaningful to me, but every time, even though it's commercialized now, like if I go to Cafe du Margot and I have a cup of coffee, an American, you know, I get what he got, get a Cafe Creme, even though I normally take my coffee black, but I get Cafe Creme because it's Hemingway. I'm sure you're smiling like you've done this stupid thing too. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you sit there and you drink the Cafe Creme and you're connected to his memories because you've read fucking movable feasts so many times. And so you're, you know, there's something about this like legacy or this line of people who've tried to tell a certain kind of story over a certain kind of time that's just meaningful. And cause you're trying to fight. I mean, what's the choice, man? Like, look, you're around my age and are close enough that you've definitely listened again to Time Out of Mind and the lines like, uh, I'm not looking for anything in anybody's eyes hit you in a certain way. And you're like, you're like, Oh fuck. So your choice is to be that guy who's no longer looking for anything in anyone's eyes or to try to be somebody who's still eyes wide open and trying to engage and hoping that you're going to leave something behind. Cause though, you know, Bob clearly has made a choice that he doesn't care. And about that, you know what I mean? About the legacy. He cares still when he's writing the songs, I think. Cause, but like the legacy part, I don't think he gives a fuck about for real. He's our better, but you know, he, I mean, Strummer may be our only uh, teacher, great teacher, but, but Bob is the best teacher in certain ways by what he does and doesn't do. And uh, so, yeah, man, like I gotta, I gotta still have some faith that, that, that there's some purpose to doing it that 
that connects to something. I mean, I think to me, it's like either you're, you know, you're carving your initials in the tree. It's like when I put out a record, it's like, you know, CF was here, right? 2022, or, you know, marking your height against the wall as a little kid. Like, here's where I am now. Here's where I am this year, you know? And, but it does affect me also in that I am, it gives me some confidence of like, for instance, this record's going to come out in a couple of weeks, but I'm not going to rush out on tour. Cause I, I don't think like going out on tour, like I'm going to tour in the fall. So like, but because it's not, it's not going to like make or break it. It's just going to be, it's like, I'm Craig Finn. This is my body of work and it has a new entry. And, um, um, yes, I think that that there's, there's a confidence and a comfort in that, but it's still, I still always want to make stuff until I, until I go down, I'm gonna. And I, I say the other thing is I, I did just say this to my, my daughter when we were talking on my pod, but, but we're out here and this is a different group of people. When I got this piece in the New Yorker last year, the, there was something about writing a shouts and murmurs and what you're talking and what you're talking about, like what that the what the magazine has always meant to me, what it meant to my you know, the memories I have reading collections from Shouts and Murmurs, the the idea of of knowing that people read the New Yorker and that that's in people's memories. Uh, it shouldn't mean something to me, but it really did mean something to me different than all the other stuff. And that has to tie into what the New Yorker meant to me 25 years ago and 35 years ago. Absolutely. I had a profile in the New Yorker and I, I definitely was thinking like, that's something growing up in the Midwest. I moved to New York and I got in it, you know, and that was like, all right. Like, 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 and then, but then you, then you kind of move on. Like, it's like. Well, I, now I want, you know, this other thing or I want, you know. Well, that, yeah, you just got to, I mean, I, I really try not to get into that game for real, but uh, 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 I'm sure I did at, at various times, but because uh, that there's, there's no, because, okay, memory, memory is really important to me in this way. I do an exercise because I meditate a lot, you know, uh, twice a day. So I'm comfortable kind of putting myself in these things. I do an exercise and try to remember consciously what I wanted out of this whole thing to begin with. And all it was, was the ability to express myself and try to get these feelings inside me out and have those feelings resonate when they hit off of somebody else and be able to do this for a living. And I promised myself a long time ago that, yeah, of course I didn't, you know, of course you get caught up in the career stuff and the money stuff, you want all of it. We're not, no, nobody's nobody here's a saint or even relate like no one's even cousins with a saint but but you got to remind yourself to do the work well and not let the work be guided by this other shit you gotta fucking go i have to go back and go all i wanted was to see stuff filter it feel something and express it and have somebody else give a shit about it you know you know what i mean you got to remind yourself of the the purpose with which you started so that you stay the course i think or i have to Well, there you have it. A great talk with Brian Koppelman. Brian is very good at that. I encourage you to check out his own podcast, The Moment. Where he's hosted a ton of great guests, some of them very famous, all of them very interesting. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. I'm Craig Finn. I'll be back before too long with another episode of That's How I Remember It. Thanks for joining me.